Hello and welcome to the Land and Climate podcast. My name is Bertie Harrison Bruninsky, and today I'm talking to Dr. Paul Dorfman, a visiting fellow in science policy research at the University of Sussex and chair of the non-profit institute, the Nuclear Consulting Group. Paul is a leading voice on nuclear issues. He's held senior advisory positions with the UK, Irish, French and EU governments on radiation risk from dismantling nuclear power plants, weapons and during the response to the 2011 Fukushima disaster. I invited him on the show to address a key question in climate planning. Do we need nuclear power to decarbonize? So there's some very key disjuncture between the reality and the rhetoric. The reality of where we are in terms of the evidence base and the political rhetoric. I began by asking Paul about why nuclear energy is such a contentious topic in climate policy. So most people now agree, I think, whether it's policymakers or journalists or the general public, that future electricity systems are going to have a lot less fossil fuel, maybe even none, and a lot more renewables. But there is still a lot of disagreement on the extent to which nuclear energy is going to be a part of that energy mix. And even into governmental climate institutions or energy institutions like the IEA is kind of pretty pro-nuclear and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is much more cautious from their recent reports at the beginning of the year. Climate experts are quite mixed. Some governments are very anti-nuclear, but a lot of governments are constructing new nuclear. Is that a kind of accurate picture of the current situation? And after a couple of decades in this field, is that level of debate new or has that always been the case? No, that's a reasonable discussion with the exception of there's a lot of countries building new nuclear. The reality is there isn't. The countries that are actually building new nuclear are largely the command and control states, so Russia and China, especially China, uh, and those influenced by those states, in other words, for example, India. There's plans, there's thoughts to build new nuclear, but other than outliers, rather like the UK and in one sense, Finland, there's no new nuclear actually being built. So this notion of a large nuclear construction going on is simply uh, fallacious. So what's very interesting here is the distinction between the rhetoric in terms of the zeitgeist and the reality of what's going on. Because, say, in the first eight months of 2023, 74% of all new electricity capacity worldwide, new capacity worldwide, is renewables, with nuclear nowhere. Do you think, then, this new rhetoric is almost an attempt to save a dying industry? Is that more the reality behind that kind of talk? It's nuclear's last gasp. And nuclear knows and understands this. In terms of, I mean, you've discussed the International Energy Agency, the IEA, who state quite clearly that the heavy lifting for net zero will be done by renewables. So there's no question the heavy lifting for net zero for the energy transition will be done by renewables. You've discussed the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change. Now, what they say is, we have no time. Their recent report, IPCC AR6 2023, published in spring this year, states quite clearly that we need to get our act in gear and very, very quickly. So you're talking about 2023, 2030, 2035, at the latest, to significantly change our energy infrastructure. Now, this is a huge war footing that we need to be put on. But then again, 
That's simply where we are. IPCC also state quite clearly that renewables are 10 times better than nuclear at CO2 mitigation. That's to 2030. And if you look at the trajectory of renewables and nuclear, by 2030, the renewables trajectory will far outweigh its trajectory even now. And similarly for nuclear. Now, the UK government department, BEIS, B-E-I-S, states clearly in a paper to parliament, a recent paper to parliament, that nuclear takes up to 17 years to put down just one nuclear power plant. That's one nuclear power plant. You're beginning to talk about the late 2030s, you're beginning to talk about the late 2040, between any sort of form of significant nuclear comes online. And even then, it's not fantastically significant. So the unfortunate reality is, whether you like it or you don't like it, whether you support nuclear or don't support nuclear, nuclear is, in factual terms, too late to help with either the energy or the climate crisis. Despite that, are we in a kind of pivotal year for diplomatic negotiations around future nuclear projects. Just two days ago, this dispute between Germany and France, I think, kind of reached an end where Germany conceded in the EU and France is now going to be subsidised for its nuclear right. Was that a key, important milestone in any of this? What France did was to hold up significant movements on uh, both renewable and climate with the hope that Germany would cave into France's uh, desire to subsidize a new nuclear. Now, the fact is, new nuclear is not being built without vast public subsidy, except in command and control states, uh, Russia and China. And also, if one looks at China, the difference between renewables and nuclear is extraordinary. In other words, China is building in a magnitude greater uh, renewables than it is building uh, new nuclear. So to go back to Germany and France... Yeah, so Germany said, well, look, okay, you do what you're going to do. Okay, we've had enough now. We're going to do what we do, and you do what you do. Now, in terms of the the capacity to subsidize new nuclear, well, okay, you know, whether it's state subsidy or otherwise, it's still a subsidy. Now, the fact remains that nuclear is now four to five times more expensive than renewables. That's including affirming in terms of grid and battery. So France says, it's going to do new nuclear. Meanwhile, if you actually look at what's happening in France, EDF is 64, was until a Macron fully nationalized EDF at the beginning of this year. EDF was 64 billion in debt, posting a 19 billion uh, loss this year, facing uncosted decommissioning and waste, vast uncosted decommissioning and waste bills. And also Le Grand Carnage, in other words, the mandatory safety nuclear upgrade of its aging reactors to cost anywhere up to 100 billion euros. So one wonders exactly what France can do in terms of the money to build what are essentially failing EPR nuclear reactors. Now, their reactors, the EPR reactor, one of which is being built in the UK at Hinkley Point C, has been hugely overcost and hugely overtime everywhere that it's been built in Flamonville in France, in Olkoliotto in Finland, in Taishan, it shut down for a year after it was constructed. And Hinkley Point C is, as usual, going hugely long and the cost is, is rising as per. 
So one wonders exactly what's going on with France and whether, despite subsidies, France can manage. What is it that drives that trend with nuclear projects where they so often exceed timelines and budgets? Is there a particular factor driving that? It's a question of low probability, high impact risk under conditions of scientific uncertainty. When nuclear goes wrong, it goes very wrong, as we've learned. So post-Fukushima, I recall I was on a platform with Anouti Khan in UK Parliament. At time of Fukushima, he was the president of Japan. And we had supper later that night. And via translator, I was kind of shocked when he said, if the wind was in the wrong direction, we would have lost Tokyo. So the point about nuclear is, it sort of puffs along, but when it goes wrong, it goes very wrong. And you can really write off a lot of lives, actually. The post-Fukushima upgrades and designs were meant to do better. The problem is, of course, is that accidents are by definition accidental. And all of the nuclear accidents have been so-called beyond-design-based cascading accidents. In other words, they were beyond their design base, necessarily account for accidents, whether that's human-induced or environmental-induced. That's both accidental or incidental. As we've learned in Zaporizhia and other places, nuclear is a significant security risk, a sitting target, in other words. So the nuclear industry tried to do better for a long time, and say, so, well, actually, we're going to really try to, to proof nuclear against incidents and accidents. And the result is, of course, is that all new generation three reactors are impossible to build. They're too complex. Generation two, generation one reactors are not safe enough. So that's the nuclear dilemma. So is it the kind of thing where one small problem in construction could have very big ramifications in terms of risk? It's not simply the question of problems in construction. It's the fact of Sod's law. Something goes wrong, uh, can go wrong, it, it probably will. Now, in terms of nuclear, we used to think of it as once every 50, 100 years. We now know it's once every 20, 15 years. And there are other questions of security. Now, according to the UK National Security Infrastructure, all our nuclear plant are tier one threats. And there's no other kind of industry that has this level of threat. A tier one threat is the highest level of threat that one can possibly encounter. So all UK nuclear infrastructure is acknowledged in the UK national security infrastructure as a tier one threat. And then we look at Zaporizhia, which, thank heavens, hasn't gone up yet. But, you know, everybody and their auntie, including the IAEA, still says there could be significant problems because there's a fighting war associated with it. One doesn't really want to look elsewhere, but one could look at Israel in terms of Dimona or Iran. The unfortunate truth is, in terms of attack and security, uh, nuclear infrastructure are, unfortunately, uh, sitting ducks. The key problem for me is that nuclear will be one of the first and most significant climate casualties. Now, nuclear needs to be sited by the coast or by large bodies of water or by uh, rivers in order to get the cooling and to be able to discharge the cooling from the reactors and the spent fuel ponds. This is where nuclear is sited. Now, we know what's going to happen with the sea level rise, and we know it's going to happen with our rivers, and we know that it's going to happen relatively soon. Now, what's going to happen with sea level rise is we hope sea level rise will be stepwise, but we don't know that. We hope it'll be stepwise. Despite recent reports say that if we breach maybe 1.7, we can say goodbye to certain aspects of the Arctic. But despite that, it's not in terms of near term, and by that I mean in the next 10 to 20 years, 
The key issue is storm surge, where certain atmospheric conditions meet high tide, where basically ups and, and moves inland. Now, as the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, the UK Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology says the coastal location of UK nuclear makes rising sea levels and storm surge flooding a future risk that will need to be considered. The US uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the key commission that regulates uh, nuclear, says that 55 US nuclear sites have experienced flooding beyond their design base. The US Army War College says that 60% of US nuclear is vulnerable to major risks from sea level rise, severe storms, and cooling water shortages. And the UK Institute of Mechanical Engineers, who are largely pro-nuclear, came out with a report in 2009, I think, uh, called Adapting to the Inevitable, which is still online. They say that coastal nuclear infrastructure may need relocation or abandonment because of climate change. Now, Sir David King, who was absolutely key to the UK going nuclear, a uh, former UK chief scientific officer, has stated that Sizewell C, which is the next supposed EDF EPR nuclear plant on the block, would be difficult to protect from flooding. So despite all of this absolutely compelling evidence that nuclear will indeed be on the front line of climate change and not in a good way, one wonders, you know, why there's this nuclear push for climate. And as discussed, because of the trajectory of renewables, because of what's really happening with renewables, with battery, with energy storage, with demand-side management, with energy efficiency, with centralized grids, with distributed grids, with all the kinds of things that are happening around energy that people are waking up to climate, nuclear has realized it's a last gasp. So what nuclear actually has to do is try to put in place of too big to fail, try to put in place of planning conditions, try to put in place money, try to put in place aspirations before the inevitable becomes apparent. I think everyone will realise that a nuclear energy station flooding sounds pretty bad, but might not know exactly what the implications of that are. Could you spell out the risks that are really involved for populations and, and environments? What would happen if a nuclear power plant flooded? There are tens of millions of people who are within 10, 20k, 40, 50k of a nuclear power plant worldwide. Bangladesh has plans to build nuclear. We know Bangladesh is very low-lying. Nuclear by the coast is coastal, as discussed, because it needs to get cooling water for the reactors and discharge its cooling waters. So we know what's going to happen to sea levels. We know what's going to happen with the storm surge. Fukushima happened. That was a tsunami. And a storm surge was exactly what happened at Fukushima. Okay, it was driven by a tsunami, but the storm surge was exactly what happened uh, to Fukushima. Uh, Climate Central, there are various reasonable models that strongly suggest that within 20, 30 years, and it's no exaggeration to say that, say, UK plant like Dungeness will be below the waterline at least once per year. We will actually have to pick up this stuff and move it. Size will see, if ever built, will once a year be almost entirely cut off by flood water. That's not simply climate central modeling, that's also UK Environment Agency modeling. The extraordinary truth is, if Sizewell C, EPR, EDF, nuclear ever gets built, by the time it's built, which is what, late 2030s, 2040, 
It will be cut off almost entirely by flood water once per year, according to the UK Environment Agency. At the beginning of the interview, you were talking about how control states are big on nuclear still. You said Russia and China as examples a couple of times, even though, as you said, China is doing pretty well with renewables. Why are Russia and China and similar states still so into nuclear? What's going on there? Well, okay, Russia, it's not doing that well in its own state because nuclear is so expensive. But what it's doing is pushing military strategic power forward by offering nuclear build and associated loans to countries to project a strategic military uh, political power, both in India and now in Burkina Faso. Just this week, Russia made an agreement with Burkina Faso, it has to be said, a developing nation to as we're potentially building a nuclear power plant and as sort of conniption fits as to how well that plant could be built or how well it can be regulated. Don't even consider the issues around uh, proliferation. So Russia is projecting power and one has very key concerns about Russia, especially in the context of the current uh, Ukraine-Russian conflict. China, to a certain extent, doing the same, but largely building in China itself. But there's a large disjuncture between Chinese renewable construction and Chinese nuclear construction. So within China itself, there's a battle going on and renewables are winning hands down. However, there is significant nuclear build going on in China. But this is largely older reactors, Gen 1, Gen 2 reactors, which are much easier to build, much quicker to build. They tried to build a Gen 3 reactor, the EDF EPR, and they didn't quite succeed. The moment that it was built, it had to be shut down for a year. And now it's kind of limping along. But there's no real information on how well it's doing. So yes, in command and control countries, there is an aspect of nuclear and the projection of nuclear power for all different kinds of political and military reasons. But that said, it's still minimal compared to renewables, especially in China. Russia is completely mad and is building nuclear power plants on boats and having them sink and not really caring too much about the waste as well, too. So one needs to get all of this into perspective. The reality is nuclear cannot be built without substantive, huge, massive subsidy, state public subsidy. Now, we're finding that in the UK with the so-called fiscally dexterous RAB model, regulated asset-based model. Now, what this does is put the UK taxpayer and electricity consumer on the hook if Sizewell C will ever get built for the massive bill of nuclear. And not simply the massive bill of nuclear, but the massive bill for the inevitable overrun of the EPR1. The EPR1, by the way, the French themselves won't touch the EPR1, their own design, with a barge pole. They say they want to build the so-called new stripped-down EPR2, which is basically a much less safe EPR1, because it would be potentially easier to build. So the French want to build a failing EPR1, which they know will be hugely overcost and hugely over time at Sizewell C, but they refuse to build it on their own soil. Now, going back to RAB, regulated asset base, and questions of subsidy, the poor, long-suffering UK public will be on the hook from day one of construction for the massive cost and delay overruns for the EPL1 at Sizewell C. And it's astonishing that basically people haven't really woken up to that yet. It's also astonishing that there is a cross-party accedence to nuclear in the UK. 
The advice comes from the civil service. The civil service for the last 10, 20 years has been hollowed out in terms of real advice and also accession to the civil service for bays and for questions of energy have largely been sort of delivered on the basis of certain kinds of predilections. Some of these predilections are, are pro-nuclear. So policy is not being advised well. If one looks at the evidence base, it is completely adverse to the kinds of advice that policy is given, be that Labour, Lib Dems, or the Tories. So there's some very key disjuncture between the reality and the rhetoric, the reality of where we are in terms of the evidence base and the political rhetoric. Now, if and when Labour come to power, which presumably they will, now, so far, Labour rhetoric is for nuclear. However, given Reeves as Chancellor and the fact that there is no and there will be no money, as we now know, Labour have drawn back significantly on their green energy uh, budgets. Why on earth would Labour then go on to splurge poor people's money on what essentially will be a horrendous white elephant when we all know that the renewable evolution is four to five times cheaper and critically in terms of the climate effort and the energy effort, much, much, much quicker. So one can envisage Labour coming to power and having a wind of change. So yes, there is this question of too big to fail. And yes, you know, all of the rhetoric is for, yes, we are definitely going to do this. But actually, when you look at it, you know, when you look at the evidence, then questions start to emerge. Even within the nuclear project, why build a large nuclear when so-called SMR, small modular reactors, are on the horizon? You know, so there's that sort of conundrum, paradox, as it were. And then let's look at small modular reactors. Now, the Rolls-Royce SMR, the Rolls-Royce SMR is in fact not an SMR. The workhorse of the French fleet is 900 megawatt power plant. The Rolls-Royce effort is about 470 megawatt. Okay, so it's more than half the size of the workhorse reactor of the French fleet. The largest reactors going are about 1,200 megawatt. That's this huge EPRs or the AP1000s or the Hualong-1s or these vast reactors, which are three to five times bigger than, you know, even the vast um, uh, size will be plant. Okay. Now, at 470 megawatt, the Rolls-Royce effort is about a third, third the size of it. It's just not small. The reason why it's not small is because Rolls have understood that the whole of nuclear is based on big is cheaper. It's much cheaper to build one big 1,000 megawatt reactor than 10 100 megawatt reactors. It just is, despite the fact of the so-called advances of modularization. It's called the economies of scale. The whole of nuclear history has been built on the economies of scale. Same with wind. Wind is much cheaper because it's bigger and better. So the notion that a Rolls-Royce SMR is an SMR, it's not small, it's actually big. So what is it? It's just a kind of a basically a cut-down reactor. And supposedly, that's what we're waiting for in terms of the other forms of SMRs. Well, the, the, the new scale American has gone up from $55 per megawatt hour you know, in production to $100 per megawatt hour. So it's sort of doubled in price. And this essentially will keep on going. SMRs are basically designs and not in production. And then one thinks about climate. How quickly can one put down SMRs? You're talking about the late 2030s at best. 
for the first of a kind. So again, much too late for the energy crisis and more importantly, much too late for the climate crisis. So why invest so much energy and money into something when we have much better, quicker, faster, more acceptable, less risky options? If we accept that nuclear energy is this risky and it is going to take this long and cost this much money, what are some of the driving forces behind that lobby? Why is it still such an established actor or stakeholder in this debate? You have a huge industry, which is a huge lobby. And it is. It's a vast lobby with a vast amount of money behind it, the vast amount of influence. You know, it takes people to supper. It appears everywhere. It looks very believable. In the UK, the unions are very pro-nuclear, despite the fact, and some of us have been trying to tell them for donkey's years, there are far more jobs for the boys in renewables than in nuclear. But there are kind of fossilized positions on this. And nuclear is a huge lobby. It really, really, really is. So there's questions about a lobby impact to policy in the context of nuclear rhetoric. And that also goes as far as media and press as well, too. And do you think the dynamics are the same in, for example, the USA? US lobby is huge, but the failed summer plants and the Vogel plant in the US have been a sort of a wake-up call from America. And there have been criminal proceedings against nuclear CEOs. The only plant recently built in the US at Vogel, again, hugely over cost and hugely over time, and funded by a similar sort of funding model that the UK wants to fund new nuclear, leaving billions and billions of debt for the local populations to sap up. The US has sort of taken a step back. In terms of governance, there's the usual talk about, well, yes, we quite like nuclear and we think it's vaguely a good idea, but there's absolutely no plans uh, for new nuclear in the US. Our thanks to this week's interviewee, Dr. Paul Dorfman, for coming on the show, and to Vasco Kostovsky for our audio production. You can find further reading from Paul in the podcast blurb and more podcasts and articles from the Land and Climate Review at www.landclimate.org. Do subscribe or follow us on your favourite podcast platform and then you won't miss our next episode in two weeks when I'll be talking to American journalist Stephen Robert Miller. We'll be discussing his new book on maladaptation and the real risks and difficulties in protecting ourselves from the extreme weather that's coming. Until then... Thanks for listening.